All aboard the MBIT Podcast with Seamus Madan. Welcome everyone back to another episode of the MBIT Podcast. I'm your host, Seamus Madan, and today we are joined by Noor Swade, a managing partner at Global Ventures. Over the years, Noor has worked for some of the largest companies in the world, including Charles Schwab and Accenture. She has facilitated her family business, Depa, a contracting company headquartered in Dubai, multi-million dollar growth and eventual IPO. She launched and ran her own business, Zen Yoga, the first yoga studio in the Middle East and Africa. She founded in 2006 and ran up until its sale in 2014. And finally, she has been an investor and mentor for many startups in the Middle East ecosystem. So first off, thank you, Noor, for taking the time to join the show. It's a pleasure to have you on. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So before we dive in, would you mind walking through or the audience through your journey starting out as a strategy consultant over at Accenture to developing an interest in venture and running a firm? Absolutely. Well, you know, I, I don't think I ever thought when I was younger that I would be a VC. I don't even think that VC was kind of on my radar when I was in college. I was in finance, economics. I was pre-law. I always wanted to be a lawyer. I never made it to law school. After my undergrad, I ended up taking a consulting role with Accenture focusing on biotech and pharma because that became of interest to me. The whole healthcare and wellness space just became very interesting to me while I was in college. And after that, serendipity. So I ended up doing my MBA at Sloan at MIT and was hired very quickly um, by Booz Allen to come back to Dubai after graduating. So that was just the journey. Very quickly then, I went from Booz to supporting and working with a family business for a little bit. That became a little bit longer. That became an IPO. That became a public company. So it was really just life's journey that, that had me take one thing than the other opportunities that arose that were exciting and really, I guess, the courage to then take the plunge and, and do something different. Definitely. And before we delve into the venture space, you mentioned your family business. You shared in an article on Entrepreneur that you wouldn't walk onto a project site and tell employees how the project should be led because you just didn't know. Why is it important for leaders to have vulnerability and what can separate vulnerability from just blindly not knowing what's going on at a company? So I think it's interesting. I think the leaders should always understand how the money's made. I could never walk onto a project site and tell you what's going wrong, what's going right. I could never look at a tender and tell you what has worked, what hasn't worked, and and therefore where we're going to make money or lose money. You know, similarly, I think every leader of every business should be able to identify where the money is made, where the risks lie, and be able to identify problems and challenges as soon as they arrive, if not before they arrive. So I think that that applies to every single company everywhere in the world. Totally. And company culture can definitely be one of those things that can change during scaling. And during your time at Depa's Head of Strategy, the company grew from 1,000 employees in six countries to 8,000 employees in 22 countries. And to facilitate for that growth, the company culture was changing. How did you manage the company culture and its evolution through scaling the business? So I think culture is very much, you know, one of those very hard to teach, but very much about doing. So culture permeates every organization and is very much a question of how do leaders behave rather than what do leaders say. So if you're the type of person that does come in early, does work late, you can imagine that the culture is then one of hard work. It's hard for you to encourage people to come in at eight in the morning if you're showing up at 10 and you're the CEO. Right? It's hard for you to tell people not to work on the weekend if you do work on the weekend. 
So really it's, it's the same as anything as like parenting, you know, they say people will do as you do. They won't do as you say. And I think that that's how you build culture is really leadership by example. And as you grow a company, I think what becomes really important is the ability to communicate throughout the different levels within the company to all the different people so that everybody can see how the leadership behaves and people will emulate the behavior of leadership. So to be able to communicate and be transparent enough so that the whole company can see how leadership behaves will enable you then to build a strong culture. And speaking of building and growing a company, I know sometimes entrepreneurs can take up way too many tasks than they can handle. And I know when I was little, my dad would often tell me the phrase one step at a time. And as a young kid, I thought to myself, why can't you do everything? But as I grew up, I came to learn that the more tasks you take on at the same time, the harder it is to do each task well. We can see the same thing with entrepreneurs when they try to do a lot of things at once. How can a founder decide what to focus on when they have multiple maybe ideas or strategies they might want to implement? within their business? So there's several questions there. I think it's, you know, what, what to focus on as an entrepreneur is really what you're passionate about. So really build the business that, that you know, you wake up in the morning thinking about. It's the first thing that pops into your mind. Really build something that means something, right? Rather than trying to build something for the sake of building a company or for the sake of being an entrepreneur. So find a problem that you're very passionate about that you really want to solve Find a solution that's very unique that you can build a moat around um, and go for it. So that's what an entrepreneur should do. In terms of all the different priorities and the 500 different things that founders always need to do at once, it's really about which will create the most value. So as you take a look at your to-do list, the question of which of these creates the most value, which of these can nobody else do? I always say that you know your job is to hire yourself out of your job. So learn something master it, processize it, hire someone else to do it so you can go create value somewhere else. Learn that, master it, processize it, hire someone to do it. And that's how you create an increasing amount of value within the company you're building. Definitely. And now that we transition a little bit into the venture space, a lot of people might not realize, including myself, how hard it is to beat the 10% annual return of the S&P 500. Now, I've done a little bit of public investing on the side, but it's completely different from running a private fund. Only about 10% of actively managed funds have actually outperformed the S&P 500 over the past 15 years. So could you provide some insight on the depth of this challenge that funds face and how you're working to beat maybe these larger indexes over at Global Ventures? I think it's always important to find a niche. So even within public markets, as well as private markets, but even within public markets, it's really about where can you find arbitrage, right? Where can you find a niche? Where do you have a competitive advantage? And usually that's an informational advantage. So what we do at Global Ventures is we invest in Series A companies across the Middle East and Africa. Guess what? There aren't that many VC funds out here. So as we take a look and we know what best practice looks like globally, we're working with founders that are addressing challenges for hundreds of millions of people. There's one and a half billion people here, right? many of whom live in very different conditions than they live in Europe and the U.S. And if you can take you know, cutting edge tech and address challenges that hundreds of millions of people face, you really have created an opportunity. And that opportunity is very much driven by the region, the technology, the founders, and the ability to invest in it is very much an informational advantage play. So as we take a look at it, our perspective is if we were doing what we were doing anywhere else, maybe in the U.S., 
you wouldn't have that informational advantage. You wouldn't have that access advantage. You wouldn't have regional on the ground knowledge as well as then the ability to take a look at which tech is best to approach this challenge and how do we do that? So our edge is very much the region, the market, you know, the one and a half billion people, half of this population is under 30. What are they thinking? What are the challenges they're facing? Knowing on the ground challenges, knowing global tech, putting it together. So I always think that, you know, as you grow as an entrepreneur and as you try to cut your edge and as you try to have returns that beat the S&P, it's really about what is unique about your experience, your vantage point and your perspective, and how can you translate that into an opportunity? Totally. And speaking of that global reach, there's been like a very big increase in venture dollars. I believe it's like 600% that have been flowing between the coast over the past few years. How is expanding reach out as a founder helpful when raising capital to not just maybe your region in the US or in their state or city, but why can it be helpful to expand globally when exploring outcomes for deal? So I think international investors are always very curious about what's happening everywhere in the world. And, and similarly, I think U.S. investors are the same. You know, people are always looking for new edges, new opportunities, things that are slightly different than what's in their backyard. And I think it's really important because as you keep your mind open and then you look at deals around the world, you start to see similarities and you start to see differences. And to the extent that you're seeing differences, you're learning, hey, what works somewhere else might actually work where I am. And you can implement and leverage these geographical kind of gaps to create, again, an unfair advantage. Definitely. And before we wrap it up, quick couple questions we can get into. What are some of the top startups in Dubai or in the Middle East region that might be catching your attention right now and uh, why? I think a lot of the companies in the region have an advantage in the sense that there's very little legacy infrastructure. So as we look to fintech, there was no real banking system. And so it was easier to implement fintech. As we look to digital health, there was no real healthcare lobby or pharmaceutical lobby stopping in the way of these small founders. I think now as we take a look, it's really about supply chain disruption. And there are some founders in the region that are that are really looking at that. So companies like Immensa, which focus on additive manufacturing, there's companies focusing on workforce management and efficiency capture, which is huge right now. So a company called Arrow Labs. And these are companies that are born in the region, scaling globally. They really use tech to address problems that affect millions of people, not just in the region, but also around the world. But they're thinking about it differently. Because of the lack of legacy infrastructure, they've been able to really think outside the box and leapfrog and create something that hasn't been created before. So those are some of the companies that are really addressing global challenges that have been exacerbated by the lack of the region's infrastructure in very interesting ways and that are able to really crack new markets doing so. And for companies that might be pitching you for deal flow or whatever it might be in terms of you investing in their company, when you take those meetings, what's probably the biggest reason that you might turn down an investment opportunity? Um, I think as we take a look at investments, we we always take a look at the founders and the team. And it's really about, is the founder trying to solve a real problem or is this just a company they're building, right? So it's really about what are they doing and why are they doing it rather than is it the company, is it the industry? It's really the founder's conviction, the story, the reason behind the the inception of the of the company and why they want to grow it. 
Gotcha. And as we wrap it up here, what would be some of your advice to any next generation folks listening into the audience about pursuing a career in the venture capital space? You know, I think my experience has led me to believe that operating experience is the most valuable asset that any VC could have. So spending time building a company, working in a company, being responsible for a P&L, building a product, selling a product, all those kind of experiences, not just make you more empathetic towards the founders, but actually understand the founders' problems as they're facing them and help you brainstorm and find potential solutions for the founders in order to help them grow their companies, in order to help them extend runway. It's much easier to have a perspective on how to do this if you've actually done it before yourself. So my advice to people that want to go into venture is go into operations, spend a few years there, and then come into venture. Definitely. We've seen a lot of interesting VCs who have come out of operations like Keith Raboy, to name one of them, and then decided to go into venture and have been pretty successful in this space. So I agree with your point on that. All right, everyone, that wraps it up for today's episode. If you enjoyed the show, make sure to leave a five-star review down below. And uh, thank you, Nor, for taking the time to join the podcast. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it.